Son of a b- 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 bitch. What's up, people? Welcome to the show. Um, a lot of great stories that I've been itching to get on air and talk about. Uh, Trump being booed and heckled when he says he got the COVID booster shot. Uh, I got a little gem in here, too, man. Alex Jones flips out over Trump's booster shot. We'll be going after Jaya Paul for saying the dumbest possible thing she could say in the wake of progressives losing in the Build Back Better negotiation. Joe Manchin is letting it all hang out now and telling the truth and saying, look, I was never going to vote for Build Back Better. Uh, We'll dive into that. Um, We do have some good news in regards to the Kellogg's workers and their strike. Hold for that. That's coming a little bit later. Is it time to have the conversation about primarying Joe Biden from the left? Hmm. Interesting. Um, and bullying politicians works. It actually worked in a very clear way that we'll discuss later. Shuan Head goes to the uh, TPUSA conference. Slavo Zizek goes full accelerationist. Um, got a really jam-packed show today. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get started, and we'll do that with Donald Trump. Former President Donald Trump is doing a uh, some sort of tour with Bill O'Reilly. It's kind of hilarious because they were – They've been friends for a while, way before Trump ran for president. And um, I think Bill O'Reilly probably twisted Trump's arm into doing this. Uh, And it's surprisingly, they have like half empty stadiums when they go and do these things. Now, interestingly, Trump on his own can pull a massive rally. We've seen it time and time again. We've even seen it relatively recently. For whatever reason, when Bill O'Reilly's there, all of a sudden the numbers plummet. It's like since he's been on Fox News, he's become massively irrelevant, which is funny because he was the number one guy on Fox News in regards to the ratings. Um, So in this conversation, in this back and forth, Bill O'Reilly brings up 
the vaccine and the booster shot, the third COVID shot. And you're going to be surprised as to, number one, what Bill O'Reilly and what Donald Trump says about it. But then furthermore, the reaction of their own people. Watch. But look, we did something that was historic. We saved tens of millions of lives worldwide. We, together, all of us, not me, we, we got a vaccine done, three vaccines done, and tremendous therapeutics like Regeneron and other things that have saved a lot of lives. We got a vaccine done in less than nine months that was supposed to take from five to 12 years. Because of that vaccine, because of that vaccine, millions and millions of people, I think this would have been the Spanish flu of 1917 where up to 100 million people died. This was going to ravage the country far beyond what it is right now. Take credit for it. Take credit for it. It's a great, what we've done is historic. Don't let them take it away. Don't take it away from ourselves. You're playing that, you're playing right into their hands when you sort of like, oh, the vaccine. If you don't want to take it, you shouldn't be forced to take it. No mandates, but take credit because we saved Tens of millions of lives. Take credit. Don't let them take that away from you. Okay, so the president made news. Do you agree with that? Okay. Both the president and I are vaxxed, and uh, did you get the booster? Yes. I got it, too. Okay, so... Um, oh, don't, 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 no, no. That's all. There's a very tiny group of them. I'm not joking when I say if liberals decided to take the opposite position, if liberals went out there and started being very vocally anti-vax, I think every conservative in this country would get the vaccine. With Trump being pro-vaccine here, and if liberals were like leaning heavy on, there's the Trump vaccine, I don't trust it, I'm never going to take it, conservatives would be asking for a fourth shot and a fifth shot already. They'd be using it like it was a drug. So... Um, little reverse psychology may have helped. I mean, I'm being somewhat facetious here, but it's also kind of true. So, look, I can tell you why he did this. Why he did this is not a mystery. Um, Trump, during his campaign, campaigns, I should say, he's very good at A-B testing. So he'll go out there and give a rally, and he'll have his list of talking points, and he'll go through them. And whichever talking points get the most applause and the most support. Those are the ones that he then uses more in the upcoming speeches and rallies. And so he was able to fine-tune his speech over time where he was just throwing red meat to his base nonstop in every rally, and they loved that. He would drop the things that weren't popular and, and uh, do the things that were popular. And listen, he knows, what do we have, 70% of the country, something like that, is uh, fully vaccinated, and maybe an even higher percentage is at least has the first shot. And so he can see those numbers. He knows that it's an ironclad fact that the overwhelming majority of the country is on the side of the vaccine. So now he's out there doing pro-vaccine stuff. What maybe he didn't realize is that there's a very vocal minority in the country and a vocal larger minority in the Republican Party and among the Trump base that really is super anti-vaccine. And so... That's what he's contending with right there. Listen, most of the crowd was with him, as you could tell from the cheering when he said, did you agree with that? But there was a group that was booing him and kind of heckling him and acting like, no, we don't agree. 
And listen, I'll say it. As somebody on the left, I'll say it. One of the things that he deserves the most credit for was Operation Warp Speed. Um, now, if I'm not mistaken, I think that the, the first breakthroughs in the vaccine came from overseas, came from other countries and other researchers. But listen, to, to cut red tape that perhaps was a little too onerous in the United States to try to speed up the testing and the production, I think that was the right thing to do given the nature of the pandemic. Now, I think he's being, he's being hyperbolic. He's given himself too much credit by saying, look, this thing could have been the Spanish flu without the vaccine. I don't think – the it, problem with the Spanish flu is that uh, it created what's called a cytokine storm, which is like your immune system freaks out and goes too hard, and it created it in young people. So the Spanish flu actually killed – funny enough, it came from, like, Kansas, not Spanish. It's not Spanish. <laughs> so the wording there is terrible and seems like Spain is to blame, but it actually originated here in the U.S. Um, it actually killed young, healthy people through because they would get a cytokine storm. It was more deadly for young people than it was for older people. So I don't think COVID would have been like the Spanish flu with as high of a death rate and as high of the numbers of dead bodies. But look, there's no doubt about it that the vaccine has saved. There was a study that came out not too long ago. I don't remember the numbers, but let me try to pull it up as I'm talking to you here. Um, I think it was 500,000. Let's see. Yes, there was a new data says 500,000 lives saved by COVID vaccinations in Europe. That's in Europe. There's uh, one that came out in the, in the U.S. This is a study from Yale. U.S. vaccination campaign prevented 279,000 COVID-19 deaths. And this came out, by the way, in July, in July 2021. So he said to that point, 279,000 um, deaths prevented from COVID because of the vaccines. So, shit, I'm willing to say in no uncertain terms that this is probably the best thing that Donald Trump did in office and the thing he deserves the most credit for, even though in other ways his, his uh, COVID response was sorely lacking and indeed terrible. He's correct here. He's correct in the broader point. Like, don't be dumb. Get the vaccine. I got the booster shot. We saved lives. Don't let people take away, take that away from you. But I will say the other portion of this, which people are not acknowledging, particularly now on the Democratic side and on the left, there's not as much of an acknowledgement of this. Unfortunately, the COVID skepticism and the vaccine skepticism does in part stem from legitimate grievances, namely the institutional rot and failure. So in other words, people on some gut level, they instinctively know that Big Pharma owns the government, and there's massive corruption, and so they don't trust the authorities anymore because the authorities have failed us time and time and time and time again. Now, in this instance, it happens to be incorrect because the vaccine does work, but it's also correct that the institutions have failed us and that there is corruption and that Big Pharma does own the government. But they let that, again, my phrase that you guys always hear me say is you should be skeptical of everything, but don't be cynical. And a lot of people have crossed that line into cynicism. And now because of that institutional failure, they think like, well, I bet the vaccine doesn't work or I bet it's a hoax or, or whatever. So credit to Trump here for saying the right thing. But you could also say, hey, it's, it's a little too late, it's too little too late on that front. But some of his people are just not, they're not going to budge on this, man. They're not going to budge. I don't think it's a deal breaker for him in the sense that even anti-vax Trump supporters will still support him and vote for him in an upcoming election. But um, there's definitely a strong contingent that is 
so far gone that they're like, this is inexcusable. I mean, it was all over, I, I think, like conservative TikTok or whatever, big time Trump stands. This is the thing that made them be like, I'm done. I'm done with him. This is, imagine this being the thing that you're like, I can't. He said something reasonable now for once. I mean, for the love of God, we could go through a zillion things he did that were just totally inexcusable. You know, the one that, uh, there's a million, but the one that sticks out to me is, remember when he randomly, on like a Tuesday before brunch, decided to assassinate a top Iranian commander who was on the ground fighting ISIS? It's like, that could have easily sparked a hot war, a broader hot war in the region between Iran and Israel. And it, obviously, it's a clear war crime, not allowed under international law. And he just randomly did it and acted like, what, I, I did the right thing. This is great. And he was bragging about it. Oh, sweet Jesus, what are you doing, man? What are you doing? And the list goes on and on. We're not going to run through them all in this segment, but this is the thing. This is the thing that you're like, Jesus, I can't, I can't handle this guy. He wants me to be protected from the, from the pandemic that's currently roaring and ripping its way through the country. So there you have it. Um, what will be interesting to see is if he continues to say this moving forward. Because, like I said, he A-B tests, and he did get a little bit of pushback when he went with this. So my guess is he'll probably lean more on the talking point of, like, you have your freedoms, I'm against mandates. He'll do that more than talking about how the vaccine is good namely because that's the thing that gets the more positive reaction than talking about the vaccine working. So there you have it, Donald Trump being reasonable for once in his life and the significant portion of his base saying, we hate it. All right, next. So Trump came out and said, I got the booster shot, and he made a a pro-vaccine argument. And one of his biggest stands is now totally and completely done with him. And he went on an insane rant, ripping Trump to shreds. I'm, of course, talking about Alex Jones. Now, uh, I I have no idea how I even found this video since he's basically been almost completely kicked off the internet. He's on some outlet called band.video or something like that. Um, And boy, is this a doozy. Here's Alex Jones absolutely losing it over Trump saying something reasonable. Take credit for it. Take credit for it. It's a great, what we've done is just again. Sign on to it. Take credit for it. Take this, sign on, believe it. I mean, hell, we're, we're fighting Bill Gates and Fauci and Biden and the New World Order and Saki and, 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 and the Davos group and, and Peter Daszak, and now we got Trump on their team. Let's continue. Don't let them take it away. Don't take it away from ourselves. You're playing that. You're playing right into their hands when you sort of like, oh, the vaccine. If you don't want to take it, you shouldn't be forced to take it. No mandates. But take credit because we saved tens of millions of lives. No, take, take credit. credit. Don't let them take that away from you. Okay. So the president made. Do you agree with that? Okay. The only thing he said true was you shouldn't have to take it. Both the president and I are vaxxed. And uh, did you get the booster? Yes. I got it, too. Okay, so... Um, oh, don't, 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 I mean, the globalists are injecting children with deadly poison everywhere, but they know erases their immune system, and Trump is running around in his stupid red tie, playing the part of the apprentice CEO, telling everybody, oh, you're playing into their hands, not taking their shot. No, Trump, 
You are playing into their hands and destroying yourself and signing yourself on to the New World Order. And that idiot Bill O'Reilly, what a pervert. Does he know how to pick women up? It just, it just, it's all just an incredible joke. I mean, seriously, just let everybody have what you want. Let Chip and Pelosi rob you. Let them molest your children. Let them take your four-year-olds away and chop their genitals off. You love it. Everybody's too busy with their own life and their own thing and their own this and their own candy-ass BS to wake up out of the coma that there is a satanic, off-world, alien attack going on on this planet. I mean, you look at it and you analyze it, this ain't human. And you people need to wake up and rally against it, or maybe we are a bad species. Maybe this thing wiping us out is good. What? By the way, that wasn't a one-off. He goes on to elaborate on the idea that this is, and I quote, satanic, off-world, alien attack on this planet. This ain't human. That wasn't, like, he wasn't... That wasn't hyperbole. That wasn't metaphorical. He goes on and continues to argue that this is from another planet. What's happening now is from another planet. It's an orchestrated attack by aliens, literal aliens. So if you're imagining, you know, like little green people with the big eyes, he is referring to them, to that. Whatever your conception of some otherworldly beings being is or beings are, I don't know how to talk, but you get the point. That's what he's talking about. Alex Jones. So let's go through a bunch of what he says here. He's like, we're over here fighting Bill Gates and Fauci and Biden and the New World Order and the Davos Group, and Trump's now signing on with them. Okay, so see, this is the problem. I mean, there's a lot of problems with Alex Jones, but I think this is one of the reasons why putting aside all the, the newer, more insane stuff, the alien stuff, otherworldly, satanic, blah, blah, blah. But this is why he was able to originally amass a following, is because what Alex Jones likes to do is take something that has a little grain of truth in it and then extrapolate it to, to Cuckooville. So, yeah, when he goes after Bill Gates and Fauci, it's like, well, okay, I get why you go after Fauci. He's a liar. He lied about masks early on being effective. or He said... You don't need to wear masks at a time when you definitely did need to wear masks. Uh, Fauci was one of the people who was laughing off the idea that maybe this came from a lab in Wuhan. Um, you know, and it, meanwhile, he, there were emails that were unearthed where he was behind the scenes. He was like, yeah, this very well could have come from that lab. I mean, there's a lab in Wuhan that studies literal bat coronaviruses, and this is a bat coronavirus. And the idea was called insane that maybe this is from the lab. And he was saying it's insane publicly while behind the scenes he was like, oh, it very well could have come from the lab. And also Trump was the one who was like, hey, maybe it did. And because Trump said it, then it became a huge partisan issue. And all the Democrats were like, that's crazy. That's stupid. Um, so, yeah, Fauci's a, a liar. And we know he's a liar. So when you go after Fauci, when you go after Bill Gates, who is a scam artist, this guy's a billionaire who's obsessed with patent protections. That's how he made all his money. And his big contribution to the pandemic, he's not a public health expert, but he took over the reins of international public health. And he set up this COVAX program, which is like, we'll vaccinate the world using charity they haven't even hit like 10% of their goal. But the whole point of COVAX is don't lift the patent protection so everybody can get a vaccine in the world. Don't do that. Let us do it through charity instead. And this way, let Moderna and Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson and the big pharmaceutical companies make all the money in the world, rip everybody off, price gouge like crazy, and let's basically keep vaccines from the developing world. I pretend like I'm the good guy and I'm going to vaccinate the developing world, even though I'm not even close to hitting anywhere near my goal. 
So, look, there's a grain of truth in going after uh, Bill Gates and Fauci and saying how they're bad. But then, you know, he takes it to this absurd extent. Oh, there's a new world order. What does that mean? The, the conspiracy is not nearly as coordinated as Alex Jones likes to think it is. The conspiracy is out in the open. The conspiracy is the run-of-the-mill corruption and incompetence. Every, everything that's wrong in this country and around the world can be explained through rank incompetence and money in politics, that corporations and billionaires have owned the government. Now, by the way, he likes to posture as, as a populist, but then ask Alex Jones, do you want to raise Bill Gates' taxes? Do you want to raise his taxes and redistribute that to give people health care and college and paid time off? He doesn't. So he actually is a populist, but ultimately a lot of the policies he prefers would help the globalists and the elites and the ruling class. So uh, then he goes on. He takes the grain of truth that, hey, Bill Gates is bad, Fauci's bad. And then he goes insane, and he starts saying stuff like, the globalists are injecting children with deadly poison that erases their immune system. The whole point of a vaccine, Alex Jones, is the opposite. It's to strengthen your immune system. It's to prepare your immune system for actually getting the virus. So if you inject, the way a vaccine works, if you inject basically a a shell of the virus, a little dead piece of the virus into your body, then your body learns to create the antibodies and, and the T cell response to go after that particular kind of virus. But now, since it's a vaccine, it can't replicate in your body, so it's not going to harm you. So now you may have mild symptoms after a vaccine. The reason for that is your immune system is reacting to what the actual coronavirus would look like in your body. So the things you feel, you may or may not feel after a vaccine, it's directly tied to your body learning how to fight off COVID. So if you actually get COVID, you're going to be okay. And we know that. As a French study, over 20 million people, uh, the vaccines reduce severe illness, hospitalization, and death by 90% because that's the way a vaccine works. Now, he says they're injecting children with deadly poison that erases their immune system. It does the opposite. It strengthens your immune system. It strengthens them. I know a number of kids who've gotten the vaccine. They're fine, dog. They're chilling. In fact, I know one who got the vaccine and now has COVID, and he's got the sniffles. And it'll be better in two and a half days. God, he says Trump is signing himself onto the New World Order. Now, Trump isn't part of some global evil plot to give people poison and reduce the population, which is what Alex Jones is now arguing. But Trump is definitely part of the ruling elite, as you know, we've been screaming from day one when you were coddling Trump's ball sack. The problem with Trump is that he does serve the elites. I mean, his number one piece of legislation, his signature accomplishment was the 2017 Trump's tax cuts. 83% of the benefits of those tax cuts goes to the top 1%. That's serving the elites and the globalists. So he is part of that club, just not in the way that Alex Jones is accusing here. And again, he had nothing to say about those things at the time. If anything, he supported Trump on that front. In his tax bill, by the way, it cuts corporate taxes. And it also incentivizes the outsourcing of U.S. jobs. And again, Alex Jones had nothing to say about it at the time. Because he's not actually interested in the hard work and the details of the day-to-day and the complexities of the policy from day-to-day. That's what we cover on this show. What he does is comes up with insane conspiracy theories about how they're trying to sacrifice your children. 
Uh, my favorite part is that he says Bill O'Reilly's a pervert. True. <laughs> True. I don't know if you guys remember the story, but Bill O'Reilly, when he was at Fox News, he was, like, harassing one of his producers or something. And he said, like, I, I want to rub a falafel all over your body. And the person was like, what? And it turns out when he was saying falafel, he, he, he couldn't think of the word loofah, and he thought the word falafel meant loofah. And so that was a very notorious uh, moment in his creepy-ass emails. By the way, there was, like, zero reciprocity from this producer. And he was just, like, Bill O'Reilly was just, like, going off, writing, writing to this person and probably beating his meat as he's talking about falafels. So Bill O'Reilly is a pervert. That's true. But it's also totally not relevant to the conversation. And then we get, let, let Schiff and Pelosi rob you. What? Uh, molest your children and chop their genitals off? Let me tell you something. You want to worry about children being molested? I'm worried about that, too, which is why I talk about Jeffrey Epstein and how Bill Clinton and Donald Trump were like this with him. And, in fact, we learned recently that Donald Trump was indeed on the plane a number of times, even though the Trump people thought for the longest time he wasn't. It was just Bill Clinton who was on that plane. No, it turns out Trump and Clinton were on that plane, and... We all know that Jeffrey Epstein is the CEO of Child Sex Crimes Incorporated, letting billionaires commit the most heinous crimes you can imagine. And shockingly, Alex Jones to this point has said nothing about Donald Trump being on that Epstein plane. In fact, he would stand for him while going after others for being on that plane because he's a partisan hack. But now, so Trump engaging in those Epstein-like crimes Nothing to say about that. The thing that's egregious is Trump saying, hey, you should get the vaccine. It might save your life. And we'll come full circle at the end here and, and talk about the satanic off-world alien attack on this planet. This ain't human. It's funny because Alex Jones has leaned more into this stuff since he's, uh, he's been kicked off of the mainstream outlets, whether it's YouTube or Twitter or whatever. He didn't used to talk about alien stuff and I mean he did bring up like demon stuff every now and then he liked to say Obama was a demon and Hillary Clinton was a demon he said they smell like sulfur and there was a fly that flew across Obama's face one time and he was like say demon literal demon so he did do that a little bit but the alien stuff is relatively new in the repertoire and I think he's leaning more heavily into that since he's been kicked off of um, the major platforms I mean this is the stuff that I you know how do you even respond to it at the end of this video, by the way, it cuts to um, Alex Jones talking about, and he's doing an ad for himself in his own video, and he says something like, you know, I don't play around when it comes to the information. Oh, you don't. So you happen to know, as a matter of fact, this is a satanic attack and that aliens are on the, come on, man. Come on, man. So um, I'd like to know what percentage of his audience that still watches him is watching him because it's just entertainment and what percentage actually believes it. And I also would like to know what goes on in Alex Jones' head. Is what he said in court true? That, look, I play a character? Or is he really crazy enough to believe the stuff that he's saying? I don't know the answer to that. I don't know the answer to that. Joe Rogan seems to believe that Alex Jones really believes everything he's saying, and he's known him since the 90s. Uh, if that's the case, and I mean this sincerely, he might want to look into either bipolar medication or paranoid schizophrenia medication because uh, he is definitely showing symptoms of that kind of a mental illness. And it is possible, you, 
give that dude some antipsychotic meds and give him some Xanax, and all of a sudden he's, uh, he's like, what the fuck was I talking about? But I'll leave it up to you. Is he uh, genuinely mentally ill, or is he just a character? I don't know, but here's Donald Trump saying the most reasonable thing he's ever said, and this is the most controversial thing he's ever said, according to Alex Jones. All right, next. Recently, we learned that Joe Manchin uh, finally put the stake in the heart of Build Back Better officially. And um, the correct point that everybody was making in the wake of that is, hey, all the progressives who ultimately voted to delink the bills, the traditional infrastructure bill from the reconciliation bill, how do you feel? Are you embarrassed? Do you feel pathetic? Because you should feel embarrassed, and you are pathetic. Um, Now, to be fair, there were six House progressives uh, who were like, I'm not – no, we're sticking to the original deal. We're not going to vote for the traditional infrastructure bill unless reconciliation goes too. All the other ones folded and caved and said, we'll take Biden at his word. When he says, "I'll I'll be able to get Manchin, I'll be able to get the votes through the Senate. Well, he lied like he does all the time. Manchin lied too like he does all the time. And um, you guys were shown to be naive rubes at best. Well, since then, Jayapal has given some interviews. And um, you are not going to believe what she had the nerve to say. Take a look at this. So Ida Chavez um, says, Jayapal says she has no regrets about the Progressive Caucus letting the bipartisan infrastructure bill pass and relying on Manchin's word alone. I love the warning underneath. Heads up, conversations like this can be intense. Don't forget the human behind the screen. Thank you, Twitter. God, they're so annoying. But she says very clearly, look, I have no regrets. No regrets? This strategy empirically, objectively failed. The goal was to get through the traditional infrastructure bill and the reconciliation bill, Build Back Better. You didn't get reconciliation through. You didn't get Build Back Better through. You weren't even able to keep it at the original number that you agreed to in the framework. It got reduced, again, for like the fifth or sixth time. What do you mean you have no regrets? What does that mean you have no regrets? Does that mean you like losing? That, that has to be what it means. Because, and here's the major takeaway here, guys. What is Jayapal letting you know? She's letting you know, I'll do it again. What do you mean you'll do it again? Meaning, I'll act like I'm being principled, that I'm fighting on the right side of things, and then I'll make a decision that stabs the left in the back, but more importantly, the country in the back, because we need those policies. And then I'll act like, well, I didn't even do anything wrong. I don't know what you're talking about. How can you say you didn't do anything wrong? How can you say there's no regrets? We're not getting the policies that were in Build Back Better. If we're not getting the policies, that is an abject failure in every way imaginable. That's the thought about this that's driving me crazy, is that Jayapal is admitting the next time there's a fight, we might posture like we're going to draw a hard line, but then ultimately we won't draw a hard line. And then when that fails again, I'll turn around and say, I don't have any regrets. We played it right. So in other words, the Democrats are professional losers, professional losers, She had a tweet like, if you think I'm going to stop fighting for Build Back Better, you're wrong. These things are too important to give up the fight. And I 
responded and said, no, you were fighting when you kept the bills linked together. You immediately stopped the fight when you said, we're going to separate them. So don't pretend like, oh, we've been fighting all along. No, you very clearly waved the white flag when you said, okay, we'll vote for the, uh, the traditional infrastructure bill without reconciliation attached to it. So in other words, the actual left flank, the six who did the right thing, were proven correct, and now nobody's, nobody in D.C. is acknowledging that the six were correct. None of the Democrats are acknowledging they were right, and the more corporate Democrats were wrong. So I don't know how you can take away from this any other lesson other than Jayapal's a professional loser. Is there any way out of this? This is the next part of the conversation. Is there any way out of this? Oh, there is. There is. But they're not going to do it. I already tweeted at both AOC and Jayapal, okay, if you, so you, oh, let's keep fighting. Okay, if you actually want to do that, here's the plan. Get about 14 House progressives, and we came to that number because they, they took off like 12 Republicans to vote for the traditional infrastructure bill. So you need to have a, a block that can prevent that 12 from joining with the corporate Democrats on anything else. So you'd be, you'd be able to block legislation. Here's the point. You could block legislation with 14 House Democrats, a left flank. If you get together a group of 14 House Democrats and you call a meeting with Joe Biden and you tell him behind closed doors, listen, you fucked us. You didn't get Manchin's vote. You lied to us. Now, he may have lied to you, but you also lied to us. So here's what's going to happen, Joe. Literally nothing is going to get through Congress the rest of your time in office unless you break out that executive order pen right now and abolish all student loan debt and legalize marijuana. And you can go down a list of things, pardon Julian Assange, whatever. Make a list of like 10 things, important things for the country. And you tell Joe Biden, you won't be able to name a road or a bridge without us in this room. The only way you're going to get us in this room is if you sign those executive orders. So we're not playing nice anymore, son. You embarrassed us. You made us look stupid. And now it's time for payback. Now it's time for revenge. And by the way, it's revenge on behalf of the American people because we're fighting for what the American people want. We are the representatives of democracy. You guys are representatives of the oligarchy. Break out that executive order pen or nothing gets through the rest of your time in office. If you wanted to keep fighting and you're on the left, that's your only out now. That's your only out. Executive orders. So... If you're not doing that, you're not fighting. I'm not going to sit here and read the tea leaves and try to give you more credit than you deserve. You're only out. It's not to negotiate with Manchin further to get a $900 billion bill through or whatever garbage. Fuck Manchin. Break out that executive order pen. And the progressives need to lean into it now. The fight is not just with Manchin and Cinema. The fight is with Joe Biden. You will make him bend the knee. You will make him do the right thing. If he wants to be known as the lamest of lame duck presidents of all time, okay, that's on him. That's on him. It's not on you. I block every piece of legislation with a smile on my face. Say, look, it's not on me. It's on Joe Biden. If he wants this legislation to get through, whatever the legislation may be, well, go ahead. Sign the executive orders. That's all you got to do. You have the key to unlock it. It's not on me. It's on you. That's all that's left. Now, I submit to you, what are the chances they're going to do that, given what Jayapal just said here? No regrets about being wrong and embarrassed and pathetic and stupid and losing horribly in front of the world. The chances she's going to do that are 1%. 
because they don't have the fight in them. Ultimately, they fell in line like little sycophants. And the only ones with a backbone were the six who did the right thing. No regrets, guys. No regrets, she says. Astonishing. That's so pathetic. We need a new word for it because the word pathetic isn't strong enough. But look, I'm telling you the path forward now. And you watch. I bet they're not going to do it. Look, go tweet at Jayapal um, that this is what she needs to do. Tell her. Get a group of 14, tell Biden you'll block everything unless he starts signing executive orders. Go do that. Go tweet at her. Go let her know. Call her office. Shit. Tell her, this is your path forward. And if you don't do this, I don't want to hear about how you're a fighter, because you're not. So it's as simple as that. I just laid it out for you. If my advice was taken, granted, I'm just a nobody YouTuber. I'm under no illusions about my position in the broader conversation here, but... If what we had said every step of the way was actually used, we already would have Build Back Better in place. Between the carrot or stick approach with Manchin, the public pressure approach with Manchin, the idea that politics is just stagnant and it, it doesn't change. Wrong. It's fluid. It changes all the time, but you have to make it change. You have to put in the effort. You have to put in the work. You have to use good strategy. You have to be intelligent. They didn't do any of that stuff. Well, now I'm giving you another out. This is the 14th attempt I've given at advice that would help the left actually get stuff done. And if they're not going to do it, I don't want to hear a goddamn word about any of it. And I don't want to hear a goddamn word about chastising people to vote Democrat when they vote Democrat and then you do this. So take responsibility, take accountability, go and do the right thing. We know the path forward. If you don't do this, that's it. Shut up. Because then people will and should rightfully start treating you like Joe Biden. Because clearly, at least on some level, you're playing the role of the professional loser. And we don't like losers. Next, let's go to uh, Manchin admitting he was never going to vote for Build Back Better. So Joe Manchin let the cat out of the bag here, as the old saying goes. He was on a West Virginia radio station, and here's what we learned. Uh, Tara Golshin of Huffington Post, she says, Manchin on West Virginia Radio saying he knew from the beginning he wouldn't support Build Back Better, but let Democrats negotiate that he got to his wit's end after staff, either White House or Senate, did something that angered him enough to just come out and say he was never going to get to yes. Never going to get to yes. Never. So the first obvious point, You can't let him off the hook for this. The first obvious point is Joe Manchin's a liar. He is a liar by his own admission. The whole time, oh, we'll get it done. I agree to the framework. There were reports that behind the scenes, right before he came out and said, I'm a no on this, he actually proposed a plan to Biden that was $1.8 trillion. Now, I don't know if that's true, but what I do know is what he said publicly. And what he said publicly is, look, we'll work it out. Take my word for it. So Joe Manchin is a disgusting, brazen liar. He likes the attention, and he likes the look of the fight with the left, because that does help him in West Virginia. It's also true that the policies in Build Back Better are very popular in West Virginia, and the people of West Virginia want those things, but it's also true that his posturing against the left flank of the Democratic Party does play well in West Virginia. So that's one of the reasons why he was doing it. But ultimately, what he's saying here is, I was always going to serve my donors. I was always going to look out for my bottom line. The Intercepts had a great article, Joe Manchin's Dirty Empire. He's got, 
like $5 million worth of investments in the fossil fuel industry. He raised money from 50 billionaires over the past decade. He's breaking records with corporate donations since he's been fighting Build Back Better. This is a guy who in every way, shape, and form has massively sold out the people of West Virginia. And now he says, look, all along, I was never going to vote for this. You know what the lesson is from that? The only thing that would have worked on Joe Manchin from the very beginning is the two-pronged approach I talked about, the carrot and stick approach and the public pressure approach. You can't even just use one or the other. You would have had to use both of those things. Now, by the way, the thing that he said there was the straw that broke the camel's back was Biden, the Biden White House released a statement about, uh, you know, a delay in Build Back Better in the negotiations. And they warned Manchin beforehand, look, we're going to mention you by name because you're the reason for the delay. You're one of the reasons for the delay. And Manchin was like, don't you dare do that. And then the statement was released and it had Manchin's name in it. And he was like, that was when I, that was, when I was like, that's it. It's it. I'm not, I'm not negotiating anymore. So just that little bit, that little barely touching him, barely laying a glove on him, he flipped out. The other time he flipped out in the negotiation was when Bernie Sanders wrote an op-ed in West Virginia newspaper where he called out Manchin. Apparently behind the scenes, Manchin was furious about that. So you're touching a nerve there when you do that. You're touching a nerve. So what would have been the path? You have to make him do what you need him to do. You clearly cannot leave it up to him because he's going to serve his donors. He's telling you, I was never going to vote for this shit. Oh, really? Oh, really? You're never going to vote for it. What if we hold rallies in West Virginia and we have, on, uh, we have posted all over the place corrupt Joe Manchin? What if we do that? What if we run ads all over West Virginia calling you corrupt Joe Manchin and listing the things that are super popular in West Virginia that you are opposed to? listing the fact that you've taken money from 50 billionaires. Now, by the way, this, this strategy was also contingent upon Biden doing it when he was still popular. But, of course, he blew all of his goodwill and became unpopular. And now Manchin still has a higher approval rating in West Virginia than Biden did. So even now, this late date, the strategy wouldn't even work anymore. But that's the – when you have the bully pulpit, there's a reason why they call it the bully pulpit. You can bully people from there if you're the president. You can twist arms to get your agenda done. Ask FDR, ask LBJ. They know. They did it. So you could have ran ads all over West Virginia calling him corrupt Joe Manchin, listing the things that he's blocking. You could have ran ads talking about the 50 billionaires he, he raised money from. You could have done that. You could have called him into your office and said, Joe, I don't want this war, JoJo. You think I want this war with you? That's the last thing I want. Look, I'm going to make you a deal you can't refuse. I'm going to make you a deal you can't refuse. If you vote for this bill, you're a hero. You will, you'll go down in history. We'll, there'll be a statue to you in West Virginia. We'll give you double the amount of infrastructure money uh, than what you're already getting. We'll, I'll give you a position in my administration or a family member position in my administration. Uh, we will publicly herald you as a hero. If you don't do what we want you to do and what the country needs you to do, what this democracy depends on, these policies that are very popular, well, I can't say you won't end up behind bars. I got my DOJ, Merrick Garland, and he's hot on your ass right now, dog. 
He's looking at you. He's looking at your EpiPen price-gouging daughter. Joe, how are you going to let your daughter do something like that? She's caught on email, dead to rights, talking about how do we come up with an excuse to jack up prices for EpiPens? This stuff is illegal. What are you doing? There are real crimes committed by Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. Conflicts of interest, corruption, his daughter involved in that. You think Joe Manchin wouldn't vote for a bill to save his daughter's life, to save his own life? Especially if your options are either that or you're a hero. You needed this two-pronged approach to get Manchin on board because clearly he just said, look, I was never going to be for it. Oh, really? Well, I'm the president of the United States, motherfucker. I got some tricks up my sleeve, bitch. That's how you had to handle it. They didn't handle it like that. They were backslapping and calling him JoJo. Nobody's putting any public pressure on him. Nobody's giving him any character stick approach. And now he gets his way. He gets his way. Absolutely pathetic. And then apparently Joe Manchin is also spewing classist garbage behind the scenes, saying, look, I'm against the extension of the child tax credit because I think the, fam- the parents are just going use it- to use it to spend the money on drugs. The child tax, you think the parents are going to use it to spend money on drugs. They cut child poverty temporarily almost in half. And your takeaway from that is, I'm not sure I like this. Maybe some of the parents are spending the money on drugs. Just come out and say it. You're a Republican. Just say it. Just say it. Classist bullshit is what that is. So I, I told them the path. I gave them the way and, you know... Of course they didn't listen. I'm just a nobody YouTuber. But it's not about me. It's about the idea here. Because I guarantee you what I just described is roughly the plan that either LBJ or FDR would have used. I guarantee you that's what they would have done. And you would have gotten Manchin's vote, and everybody in the public would have thought, like, oh, cool. But instead, it's the Democrats are perpetual losers. And let's also be clear about one final thing. The reason why they wouldn't use that approach anyway is because I think Biden, Pelosi, and Schumer never wanted a $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. They wanted like a $1 trillion or $900 billion deal. They wanted a more slimmed-down package. So since that's their politics, since that's what they wanted, they thought, oh, good, Manchin will be our excuse that we only get a trillion or $900 billion. So in other words, they wanted to let Manchin do his whole tap dance, but at the end of the day, they thought Manchin would come to the table and agree to about a trillion. And they'd be like, great, that's actually what we wanted. What they didn't bank on is him being against anything. So there you have it. Joe Manchin, colossal liar, massively corrupt. And to the media, don't pretend this is ideological on his part. Don't pretend he's just a principled moderate. He's doing it for his donors. He's doing it for the money. He's doing it for his own bottom line. It's got nothing to do with representing West Virginia because West Virginia is just different. We showed you the polls. Build Back Better was so popular, even a majority of Republicans in West Virginia supported Build Back Better. But, of course, they'll continue to propagandize you and not tell you the truth, as they always do. All right. I got one more on Manchin. So Joe Manchin very publicly is uh, against Build Back Better now. He effectively said on West Virginia Radio, I I was never going to vote for it. Uh, He's a liar. He's a scumbag. He's representing his donors. Well, now uh, he may have overreached. And when I say that, what I mean is constituencies that generally have stood by Manchin, are now turning on him. So take a look at this. Kim Kelly, 
great labor reporter says, Manchin has lost the coal miners with his latest betrayal. As the UMWA notes here, Build Back Better would have extended the fees coal companies now pay to fund benefits for black lung victims. Without it, that necessary burden shifts to the taxpayers. Once a coal boss, always a coal boss. And you can see there, United Mine Workers said, we urge Senator Manchin to revisit his opposition to this legislation and work with his colleagues to pass something that will help keep coal miners working and have a meaningful impact on our members, their families, and their communities. Okay. I want to give you more of the, um, of the statement here from the Coal Miners Union because it's actually, I think it's, I think it's very substantive. So they say the Build Back Better legislation includes several items that we believe are important for our members and their communities, some of which are part of the UMWA's Principles for Energy Transition that we laid out last spring. Quote, the bill includes language that would extend the current fee paid by coal companies to fund benefits received by the victims. This is the black lung part that we just went through. The bill includes language that will provide tax incentives to encourage manufacturers to build facilities in the coal fields that would employ thousands of coal miners who have lost their jobs. We support that and are ready to help supply those plants with a trained professional workforce, but now the potential for those jobs is significantly threatened. The bill includes language that would, for the first time, financially penalize uh, outlaw employers that deny workers their rights to form a union on the job. This language is critical to any long-term ability to restore the right to organize in America in the face of ramped up union busting by employers, but now there is no path forward for millions of workers to exercise their rights at work. For those and other reasons, we are disappointed that the bill will not pass. We urge Senator Manchin to revisit his opposition to this legislation and work with his colleagues to pass something that will help coal miners working and have a meaningful impact on our members, their families, and their communities. Joe Manchin lost the coal miners union. Look, it's a failure at every level. It's a failure of the media to report the truth. It's a failure of the Biden administration to twist arms. It's a failure of Joe Manchin to listen to his constituents instead of his donors. It's a failure of the left from not sticking with the fight and keeping the bills linked and applying pressure. And um, this is why people are cynical about politics, because you have this bill where all the provisions are popular, really popular. It would have made a big difference in a lot of people's lives. And it just seemed from the beginning it had an uphill battle. Well, in a country that's supposed to be a democracy, why does it have an uphill battle? Why is that the case? And we know why it's the case. Because in every election, people are voting for the lesser of two evils, and uh, it's, it's a matter of competing donor sets. And then whoever you get in there, whoever gets in there is bought. They're bought by corporations. They're bought by big business. They're bought by big pharma, Wall Street, the military-industrial complex. And so they always get represented first. Well, this was a bill that the corporations didn't want. They were fine with the traditional infrastructure bill because it had some corporate giveaways in there. This is a bill they didn't want. Helps the workers too much, helps the people too much. And then here we are, and it, it feels so, we feel so ineffectual in this fight against the status quo. Well, look, I, like I told you from the beginning, I don't buy the, the notion that there's no hope. Because if you say that, what you, you really believe is politics are stagnant. And they're not. They're just not. Politics are incredibly fluid. Things always ebb and flow and change, and minds... Uh, can be shifted even through trickery and deceit and pressure. And there was always a path for this, but you would have needed the left to have their shit together. You would have needed to have Biden to act like FDR and LBJ, and you would have needed to uh, twist arms in an effective fashion. Well, at least one of the upsides now is Manchin could be toast. I mean, if he's losing his hardcore, uh, I mean, these were, the Coal Miners Union was a pillar of Manchin's support. 
if you're even losing them, then he's, in other words, he's looking like he's in a Kirsten cinema like situation where the polls came out of Arizona and literally any generic Democratic primary challenger against Kirsten Sinema is up. You might see the same thing coming out of West Virginia, even though Manchin is a huge name in West Virginia, and he was more solid in West Virginia than Sinema uh, ever was in Arizona. But this might be a sign of what's to come unless and until uh, Manchin course corrects to some degree. But either way, um, yet again, we have another story here where organized labor at the end of the day is doing the right thing. In fact, we have a story coming up on unions in a second here that shows how if anybody's leading the way for left victories, it's unions. And you have a union doing the right thing and calling out Manchin. And um, that's definitely one of the things that we need to lean more into heavily going into the new year here is that the one portion of the left that appears to consistently now be on the offense when they used to be on the defense is unions. And so one of the answers is a lot more organizing and um, a lot more aggressiveness. And if it's the union movement that's leading the way into the future for paving a path for politics to be less shitty, I'm here for it. Okay, let me take a break. When we come back, striking Kellogg workers win. We'll talk about that, and then we'll talk about if it's time to primary Joe Biden from the left. Stay right there.
All right, y'all, we back. Just had myself a little cliff bar. Got my breakfast breakfast flow going. Now I got a very positive story for you. You know, it seems like every time we have good news on the show, it's tied to unions. Um, there was a very there was a decision that was made, and it's a very concerted effort that unions are now going on the offense and they're no longer on defense. Uh, we spoke about this with the great labor reporter, Jonah Furman, on Crystal Kyle and Friends not too long ago. And we, we're seeing evidence of it everywhere, where unions are winning battles. You know, the John Deere workers won a, a, a pretty good contract when they went on strike. Well, Kellogg's workers have been on strike for a while now, and uh, it turns out they just won. They won big concessions. Now, there was reporting not too long ago that Kellogg's was like, we'll just bring in scabs permanently and get rid of the, get rid of the actual workers. Um, it appears now there's been a reversal, and the uh, actual Kellogg's workers have won some major concessions. So what I want to do here first is show you how Bernie recently went and spent time, with the, spent time um, on the picket line with the Kellogg's workers and um, showed some phenomenal solidarity here. And then afterwards, I'll tell you the, um, the terms of the new contract. Take a look at this. If you love America, and I'm old, you know, I come from the Senate, every politician there, how much they love America, they got the big American flag. If you love America, you love the workers. And if you love American workers, you don't ship their jobs to desperate people in Mexico and pay them 90 cents an hour. Enough. We want dignity, we want respect, we want justice. 
That uh, was adorable there at the end. Um, yeah, the, the video is longer than that. It's maybe a minute or two longer than what I just showed you. But, um, yeah, that's powerful, man. That's powerful. And I will say, but look, Bernie's got plenty of flaws that I talk about all the time. I do think he is somewhat naive about the way power works, and he feels like if he goes along with Democratic leadership, he can get concessions more than at times taken, drawn a little more of a hard line and relying on his base of support to apply popular pressure. Um, so I, I do have criticisms of Bernie, but at the same time, you cannot deny that the man is one of the only ones in D.C. who truly cares about working people. And it's clear his whole career has been centered on trying to do right by the American people. And this clip really highlights it. I mean, he's a senator. Does he have to go to a Kellogg strike in the middle of, you know, the winter and shake hands and show support? No. But he does it because he cares. So, I mean, credit to Bernie, but really the credit to the Kellogg's workers here who are standing up and fighting back against corporate greed. So, uh, more perfect union yesterday tweeted this breaking striking Kellogg's workers have voted to approve the latest contract offer from the breakfast giant. Uh, workers went on strike for 10 weeks to fight for better wages and benefits after working 24 seven during the pandemic. The contract wins, uh, wins raises for all workers, including an immediate 3% raise for long-term or legacy workers. Workers will also receive an immediate cost of living raise. The strike preserved high-quality health care benefits and won big bumps for retirement funds. Kellogg's threatened its workforce by hiring permanent scabs, a plan condemned by Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. The deal alters but does not eliminate the two-tier system and is silent on the rampant abuses of forced overtime. Okay, so this is a similar thing to what we saw with the John Deere strike. Basically, with the John Deere strike, they, there was a contract that barely failed. I mean, it was like... 52% against it or whatever, and John Deere was like, okay, we're walking away from the table. But then they came back to the table, and there was another contract offer, and that contract offer was approved. And basically, there were huge changes. The one thing that wasn't totally changed was the pre-1997 rule where, in other words, the two-tier system where, like, new workers don't get paid as well as the older workers and uh, have fewer benefits. Uh, and it appears like the exact same thing happened with this Kellogg strike, where they got a number of massive concessions, but still there's still some semblance of a two-tier system, and they, didn't, they weren't able to address the overtime dilemma here as well. So, look, those things should be addressed, and it's very possible in the next contract negotiations they will be addressed. Same thing with the John Deere strike. And to be clear, the John Deere workers even said, we don't expect that this part actually gets addressed, at least not in this first contract. Um, and I, I think the Kellogg's workers felt the exact same. But look, they were able to get big concessions. It's a good contract. It's not a great contract. But it's a contract that the workers voted to approve. And I think they did that because um, it is sufficient. So I just want everybody to know that in the wake of all of these terrible stories, these bombarded with negative news day after day about 
you know, corruption in Washington, D.C., and weak, feckless Democrats, and a left flank that's totally toothless, and you got all these things that you look at, and you're like, well, Jesus Christ, what is even the point? A lot of people go full nihilist in, with the onslaught of the negative news. What I want you to know is it's not all negative, and um, when the going gets tough, work harder and fight harder and be more intelligent and strategize and organize. And um, it's the union workers who are leading the way here. And so, you know, I want to say a big thank you to the Kellogg's workers and a big thank you to the John Deere workers because in a way they're providing us with the only dose of hope that we've been getting. And uh, that should fire you up to want to do more on your own. You know, if you're in a workplace that's not unionized, maybe you try to form a union. There's other ways to get involved in politics, and I support literally any avenue where you think you can make a positive change, whether it's running for some state or local position or joining the DSA or um, whatever it might be. We're not, yes, there's a, a brick wall in front of us, but sometimes brick walls get demolished. And so... It's better to do that and keep the fight up, stand there and stare at the brick wall and say, oh, there's nothing I could do about it. Well, they did something about it. The Kellogg's workers did something about it. The John Deere workers did something about it. And so that means we could all do something about it. So solidarity to these workers and a big thank you to Bernie Sanders for that show of support. And let's knock some more victories, man. This, if, if, if nothing else, this should fire up other unions to now know, hey, we can win. We can win. Let's. Let's start taking more direct action and, again, let's keep it on the offense and not the defense anymore. That's what we're beginning to see. Okay, next. So it's time to have the interesting conversation about whether or not we should primary Biden from the left. Look at this uh, piece from Politico here. Progressives were frustrated with President Joe Biden even before Senator Joe Manchin knifed the Build Back Better Act on live television Sunday. Voting rights legislation appears to be going nowhere. Student loan collection is expected to restart early next year. Some of the Trump administration's border policies remain in effect. And the $6 trillion social spending and climate action bill Democrats had once envisioned had already been whittled down to less than $2 trillion over a decade, leaving many progressive priorities on the cutting room table. Now, with the, with the sting of this latest Build Back Better setback still fresh, progressive lawmakers and activists are openly venting about the White House, and some are even entertaining the idea of a primary challenge to Biden in 2024. If he stands by his plans to run for re-election, uh, asked if she thought there'd be such a challenge, former State Senator Nina Turner, a close ally of Bernie Sanders, told West Wing Playbook, quote, without a doubt, I think the movement is going to cry out for that, she said. We played nice in 2020, we played nice in 2021, and what do we get for it? Asked if she would consider challenging Biden, Turner declined to comment. So understand something. I'm on record, and I've said this repeatedly over the decade of me doing this show. I'm on record of saying primary challenges to sitting presidents never work. You're not going to win even the most unpopular sitting president for a current party because of raw partisanship. They will always win out. So in other words, even though Biden's approval rating, depending on which poll you look at, ranges from anywhere from 38% to 45%, within the Democratic Party, he polls at 80%. Even given all of his failures, even given all the weakness, even given the fact they haven't done, lifted a finger since the $1,400 checks. 
That's what you need to understand. He's at 80% among the Democratic base. Now, that's relatively low, historically speaking. Trump did have over 90% approval rating, probably still does within the Republican Party. But that's still 80%. It's still high among the people who will actually vote in a Democratic primary. So I don't want anybody to be under any illusions here of like, oh, there's a chance. There's not a chance. There's just not. I'm sorry. I I don't want to be the bringer of bad news. Bringer of bad news? Bearer of bad news? Whatever the phrase is. But there's not a chance. Now, having said that, should Joe Biden be primaried anyway? Yes, he should. Why do I say that? I say that because we have this problem in the U.S. where the Overton window keeps shifting further and further and further right. And so Republicans go off to Cuckooville, and then Democrats shift further right and meet them halfway to Cuckooville, so Democrats are proudly half cuckoo. And every election cycle, that repeats. Every election cycle. And the Democrats think they're, you know, we're reasonable centrist moderates, but it's like, actually, you are just a Republican from 1982 at this point. So something needs to be done to break the fever and shift the conversation. And one of the ways to do that is a high-profile primary against Biden in 2024. Now, don't tell me, well, that's going to hurt Biden in a potential re-election campaign. Total bullshit. The Republicans in 2016 had the most vicious primary you could ever imagine. Donald Trump saying Ted Cruz's dad killed JFK. People talking about other people's wives. I wouldn't spill the beans on her. Talk, debates where they bring up dick size. They're at each other's throats. It was vicious. And then Donald Trump won the presidency in 2016. Don't tell me that a robust, argumentative primary cycle hurts the candidate because there is zero evidence to back up that claim. None. And that's exactly what corporate media will tell you. Corporate media is wrong, and they're very wrong about this. So what do you do to shift the conversation? What do you do to let everybody know there's another perspective out there? You primary Biden from the left. I wouldn't even frame it, by the way, as primarying Biden from the left. I wouldn't do that. I would take a candidate like a Nina Turner, run her against Biden, and I'd have Nina go out there, advocate all the policy stuff she already advocates for, Medicare for all, free college, living wage, end the war, so on and so forth, all that stuff. But I'd have her go out there and say, actually, I'm the moderate. I'm the centrist. Joe Biden is the extremist, and Donald Trump is the extremist. These people are way far to the right of the American people. He couldn't even get Bill Back Better done when the goddamn bill polls are like 80%. I'm the person who will actually get the 80% bill through. And I'll also break out that executive order pen, eliminate student loan debt, legalize marijuana, and do the things that the American people want. Because my job is not to tell you my opinions and force them on the country. My job is to be a vessel, a medium for your opinions, the American people. So I'm the candidate who actually represents the will of the people in this country. And I'm the candidate who's just the medium for the voiceless. That's what I do. I don't listen to corporate donors. I don't listen to billionaires. I listen to you, the American people. And therefore... The best label to put on me is moderate. I'm the real moderate. Joe Biden is not a moderate. That's what you do. But what you can do is put the issues front and center. Now, look, I will say the other downside of this is, which is maybe why Nina shouldn't be the one to do it. We could have that conversation. But whoever does primary Biden would be cast out as a total pariah moving forward in the Democratic Party. So that means when there's a 2028 campaign or whatever, fast forward to the future, if you're the person who primaries Biden, they'll say, oh, you're not sufficiently loyal to Democrats. And that argument will work. 
You know, it was one of the things that Bernie had to struggle with when he ran in 2016 and 2020, is that in 2012, he openly floated this idea that maybe I'll primary Obama. And that was used effectively against him by the establishment, where it was portrayed as you're not sufficiently a party person, you're not really a Democrat. And even though that argument to me and you, we roll our eyes, if anything, we're like, good, you're not really a Democrat. But to actual Democrats in a primary who are voting in a Democratic primary, that's an effective argument, and they don't like that. So it is, in a way, it is sort of career suicide to do it. But at the same time, it is so necessary because you can force the conversations we need to have into the body politic, into because the, they'll be forced to cover you. If you're primarying Biden from the left and you're the only person who's running against Biden, they won't be, the media won't be able to help themselves because one of their biases that we rarely talk about, but it's a real bias that they have, is a sensationalism bias. So if you have somebody breathing fire from Biden's left, that can have an impact. Now, the other thing is what? If it's a sufficiently credible challenger in the sense that maybe they'll rack up 15 or 20 percent of the Democratic primary vote, that then forces Biden's hand to try to do the come together kumbaya moment. And it may actually force him to be slightly further to the left. Now, I'm under no illusions about how Joe Biden governs and about all of his flaws. um, But this is also the guy who pulled out of Afghanistan. Granted, he's now literally starving Afghanistan through sanctions. So, I mean, talk about cold comfort and, and tiny credit here that he pulled out of Afghanistan. But he also raised the federal, um, the minimum wage for federal employees and federal contractors to $15 an hour. He also did cut those $1,400 checks. But point is, he's going to go where the sentiment forces him. And the, the voices that are in his ear 24-7 in Washington, D.C. are the reason you're down in the polls is because you're too extreme, you're too progressive. If we can send a message that actually notes the opposite, the reason why you're not doing well in the polls is because you're not lefty enough, well, then that could incentivize him to, on a handful of issues, go further left and feel like he has to sort of appease this very angry wing of his own party and his base. So there are a number of upsides to primarying Biden from the left, and there are a number of downsides to primarying Biden from the left. But I think it's necessary to force the national conversation where it needs to be. Namely, the media is wrong and corporate Democrats are wrong. The problem isn't that Biden is too idealistic, pie in the sky, and far-reaching with his ideology. It's that he's too corporate and he's too corrupt and he's too willing to go along with the status quo. And so just imagine a a charismatic, likable, fire-breathing lefty who doesn't even call themselves a lefty. They call themselves a moderate. And they can generate headlines. They can stick to policy and push hard from the left even though that person would get crucified in the media, even though that person has no chance of winning, it might actually force the conversations to happen that need to happen around student loan debt elimination, around legalizing marijuana, around cutting another stimulus check, around a whole plethora of issues. So I think it's the right move, even though um, ultimately that person wouldn't win. But the left needs to reassert themselves because they've been so toothless and so pathetic for so long. We need to awaken lefties to know the only option isn't to be toothless. You could also be crusading for the right things. Okay, next. So 
we just had the conversation about primarying Joe Biden from the left, um, even though a primary challenge against a sitting president never works, and it wouldn't work in this instance either, it still might be a good idea just to change the conversation and force it back on the issues. Um, now we have some more evidence as to why maybe it's a good idea to primary Biden from the left. And the main takeaway from this story is bullying politicians and applying pressure works. So take a look at this. This is uh, CNN breaking news says President Biden will announce a plan to distribute 500 million at home rapid COVID-19 tests as the U.S. faces a winter surge of infections. Well, hold on just a second now. It was what, a week ago, two weeks ago at most that Jen Psaki was, uh, you know, doing her press secretary thing. And one of the journalists asked, well, why not just send people free tests? And she she was like, what? She was like mocking the idea. Or actually, she's the one who brought it up. She's like, what, you think we should just send everybody free tests? And the journalist was like, yeah, other countries are doing it. And Jen Psaki looked like an idiot. Well, that moment really touched a nerve, not just on, you know, lefty independent media, not just on independent media more generally, but apparently it touched a nerve even in some official establishment circles. Um, and there was so much negative coverage over that and so much mocking of Jen Psaki that the White House felt the pressure. And they were like, oh, God, Jen, what have you done? Jen, what is this? What are you doing? And ultimately, they decided we have to do it now. And so they're doing it. By the way, look at how easy that is. They act like, we can't do that. And then really, when they're forced to, they're like, okay, we're going to do it. Yeah, you're the federal government. I mean, you guys, tried to, you guys tried to nation build thousands of miles away on a random Tuesday before brunch. But you're telling me you can't send people COVID tests? Nonsense, nonsense. Of course you can do it, and they're going to do it. So look, this is bottom-up pressure working, working. And it also shows what happens when the media does their job, when the media is like, this is kind of stupid that you said this. You, you make them feel dumb enough, and they're like, oh, okay, all right, all right, my bad, my bad, my bad. Okay, did I, did, did I say that? But I meant to say what happened was me and Craig and then was down by the Safeway, and we saw Jimmy with Craig and Dave come through, and we was like, what's up, y'all? It works. Now, but I got one better for you. There's another story that came out. Now, this one, to be fair, is not confirmed yet, but they are now reporting that the Biden administration is very seriously considering not restarting student loan uh, payments on February 1st, like the original plan was. I don't know what they saw. Maybe they saw that poll that said 89% can't afford it right now. Um, Maybe they've heard, you have had, the left flank of Congress has been screaming about this, and I've seen it. All the left flank have been like, are you crazy? So I think they're feeling the pressure on that front, too, and they're like, shit, maybe we got to reconsider. Especially because, again, you're, you're super low in the polls. you got an election coming up very soon. Trump's the one who originally suspended student loan payments, and you're going to be the one that restarts them in the middle of another surge? So they may actually move on that one, too. But, again, this would be an, this would be an example of it's an amalgamation of factors, but you have his poll numbers being low, the media actually being like, whoa, the left flank being really aggressive and loud against this and bottom-up pressure. So it worked to force them to do free COVID tests. It might work to force them to at least temporarily pause student loan repayments again. But look, 
what they're showing you is there are weak spots, there are pressure points. If you keep up the fight, if you keep forcing them, then eventually they'll give. So this is, look, it's another good news story. And I haven't, we don't have a lot of good news stories. Usually when we do these days, it's around unions. This is a non-union related good news story about when you embarrass the politicians, when you shame them, when you pressure them from the bottom up, it works. Now, usually it also helps to do the good cop, bad cop routine, right? So you need somebody who plays, hey, I think you guys should maybe do this. So I'm sure there were some people in the administration behind closed doors who were saying, look, I think you guys should probably do this just so you know. I mean, it'd be the right thing, blah, blah, blah. So you need that good cop, bad cop energy on one level, but then you need a relentless tsunami of bottom-up pressure as well. And that may have been exactly what we got to get the free COVID tests and to uh, maybe see some movement on student loans, at least to temporarily pause them again. By the way, they say, Jen Psaki tried to save face on this, hilarious, because now they're doing the thing that she was mocking, like, of course we can't do that. Well, so what did Jen Psaki say? She was like, well, not everybody's going to get the test, so, so I, was, like, I wasn't wrong. Okay, but Jen, now it's going to work the same way it works in other countries, which is you can request tests. If you go online and then request the test, they send them for free. And they send them through the mail. That's exactly what it's like in other countries. So they're still working out the details as to how many each, each household can order and all that stuff. But um, that's what people were asking for from the beginning. That's exactly what they were asking for. That's how it works in other countries. I mean, I guess you could say it would be a, a harder logistical problem to just send them all out without anybody requesting them to everybody in the mail. So they're not doing that. But they're doing the thing that most other countries are doing, which is if you request it, we'll send it for free. But you're trying to save face to be like, this, this isn't the thing that I was mocking the other day. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Own it. Own it. But that's the neoliberal rot brain where they feel like government can't really do anything. It's like, okay, then just be a Republican if this is what you believe. The government cannot in any circumstance be a force for good or do the right thing or provide the, the structure and the infrastructure and the, and the support system. I guess that's done. Of course it can. But this is why new Democrats are a problem, the neoliberals, the corporate Democrats, because they do at least half agree with the Republicans. They all privatize everything. That doesn't work out too well. So anyway, there you have it. It's a good step in the right direction. Credit to everybody who did the pressure from the bottom up. And um, we'll see what happens on student loans. Uh, I wouldn't take that one to the bank yet, but at least there's some movement on it. Okay. Now, we got a funny one for you. Shuan Head went to the TPUSA conference. Of course, that's the right-wing conference with, you know, Charlie Kirk and all these weirdos. Um, so there's this thing there called the free speech ball. And the idea was, hey, we believe in free speech, unlike these dumb lefties. And so we're going to let you come and write whatever you want on this ball. Anything's allowed. Anything. Um, so I want to show you what she wrote on it. She wrote, I like how it's in a much bolder marker than everything else, socialism rocks. They got other weird stuff there. Horns down, California. There's a let's go Brandon thing that she's kind of writing over a little bit. Um, there's one that says like porn kills or something <laughs> porn i can't read it it's it's too small and too far away um 
A lot of weird stuff. I do find it funny that have, being able to write anything and they still write uh, Let's Go Brandon. So here's what happened to Socialism Rocks that was put on the free speech ball. You could see like the slight outline there, but it was erased and then colored over. Erased and then colored over. So on the free speech ball, the one thing that the right-wingers were not comfortable leaving up was socialism rocks. I don't think the people who erased that thought through the implications of what they were doing. I don't think they understand that you just unmasked yourselves, you dipshits. That's what you just did. You just let everybody know, I don't actually believe in free speech. I don't want the left to be the censors. I want to be the censor. I want to be the one to control the speech. That's what I mean by free speech. I get to speak and you don't. Well, thank you for verifying everything we've ever said on this issue from day one. This reminds me of, the remember the Mike Lindell free speech platform? He's um, it's going to compete with Twitter, and it's the free speech version of Twitter. And uh, in the same breath, Homeboy was like, we're all about free speech. And on our platform, we don't allow cursing, taking the Lord's name in vain, slurs, uh, pornography. And he had like a laundry list of stuff that you can't say any of this. But we believe in free speech. A lot of those things fall squarely into the domain of free speech. But again, what they mean is free speech for me, but not for thee. A lot of times when the right melts down and talks about free speech, they want to be allowed to get away with saying things that are untrue without you correcting them and saying, hey, you're factually wrong. Here's why. And they want to run away from the consequences of saying incorrect things, provably, demonstrably, verifiably incorrect things. Now, I'm on the side of let them say it, but then let people respond too. And I'm not on the side of deplatforming or censorship or whatever, but that's part of dialogue. And oftentimes the free speech blanket is thrown over just basic dialogue stuff where people want no pushback at all to anything they say. And just this notion in general that, you know, the right likes to think we're the pro-free speech people and we're the anti-cancel culture people. And it's like the original cancel culture was when the Dixie Chicks basically lost their career because they dared to say, we're against George Bush and we hate the Iraq war. And you would think they came out for pedophilia with the reaction. They were mega canceled. How many examples? I ran through the list the other day in, in the Donald Trump Jr. segment, but there was a movie called The Hunt that was pulled because conservatives were offended by it. Roy Moore sued Sasha Baron Cohen because Sasha Baron Cohen made a politically incorrect joke where he used a pedo detector on Roy Moore. By the way, Roy Moore lost that lawsuit and was laughed out of the courtroom. Trump sued Bill Maher over a joke. Emily Wilder was fired by the AP because she used to do pro-Palestine activism. Colin Kaepernick lost his job because he kneeled. Gwen Berry turned away from the, the American flag, and the right wanted her kicked off the Olympic team. Little Nas X came out with, a, with the Satan shoes, and you had North Dakota Governor uh, Kirstie Noem come out and say uh, he should be canceled for this. Meanwhile, that person proclaims to be the most anti-cancel culture. Brandy Love, a porn star, was kicked out of CPAC. Chapo Trap House was banned on Reddit. Antifa was banned on Twitter. 
never mind the anti-BDS laws in this country that literally crack down on free speech, never mind the anti-protest laws in over 20 Republican states where they, if you're protesting for things that they disagree with, they literally want to criminalize it. Don't tell me you're in favor of speech, free speech and then act like you act because you're not in favor of it. You just want to be the censor. And there's the best example of it here. You couldn't get a more black and white, cut and dry situation. Socialism rocks on a free speech ball, and they're like, everything can stay except for that. Except for that. The, the thought that makes me giggle more than anything else is that as they're erasing it, they literally have no clue that they're totally destroying their own worldview, undermining their own argument, exposing themselves as colossal hypocrites who really believe in nothing that they say they believe in. They just gleefully, like, of course this shouldn't be allowed, but everything else, allow it. I'm sure if somebody wrote the N-word on there, they'd be like, cool. But socialism rocks? No. Got to get rid of that. Says a lot, doesn't it? Okay. Jesse Waters is, um, he's a moron. They... On this Fox News show, I forget which one it is, uh, but they went after Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez for the most reasonable thing she's ever said. And they, as you'll see here, the hosts have no idea how to handle this argument and try to respond to it. So did Senator Manchin break his commitment to you? Senator Manchin and I are going to get something done. Thank you. President Biden trying to put his best foot forward on feeling the rift with Senator Joe Manchin after the White House called him a liar. The radical Democrats don't want to hear it. Progressives are focused on pressuring Biden to go it alone on the spending plan. AOC tweeting this, Biden needs to lean on his executive authority now. He has been delaying and underutilizing it so far. Just as the same people who whinge and screech about the ruination of democracy... Um, are telling him to trample on the Constitution. Yeah, let's make him king. We'll build him a throne, put a crown on his head. We'll just have the monarchy. Squad can go home. We don't need Congress. Power of the purse. Give it to Joe. Send the Supreme Court home, too, while we're at it, right? No checks and balances. We're just a monarchy now. Like, who talks like that? It doesn't even pass the if the shoe were on the other foot test, which is a great test, and you know how much I hate tests. This is like a... Did you pass that test? Yes, the only one. If Trump were president and he didn't have a majority in the Senate, you think AOC would be like, yeah, just let Trump enact the MAGA agenda? (laughs) No, of course she wouldn't. Yeah, because Trump is for policies like let's randomly assassinate a top Iranian commander and almost spark a war which violates international law and U.S. law. So, yeah, letting Trump run wild with terrible executive orders that do objectively batshit things is not a good idea. Now, Biden, on the other hand, at least with the stated things that he pretended to be in favor of in the campaign, if those were done through executive order, number one, they would actually be allowed, but number two, they'd be good. It's, it's like, you're against it when a Republican president does stuff, but you're not against it when a Democratic president does opposite stuff? Yeah, Jesse, it's called politics, you nitwit. I, oh, God. It's just so stupid. And by the way, there are certain executive orders that Trump could do that people would support. For example, Trump used executive authority to pardon Alice Johnson. On that front, I look at it and I go, wonderful, great. 
You pardon somebody who's a nonviolent drug offender who shouldn't have been locked up in the first place, who's going to spend life in prison, and you let her go. That's wonderful. So you've got to go on a case-by-case basis. Is this executive order good? Is it bad? Is it constitutional? Is it not constitutional? Each one is different, Jesse. Each one is different. God, he's such a... He's so dumb. Like, he's just incredibly stupid. Now, I will say this as well. Um, You're not talking about a monarchy, blockhead. You're talking about a dictator. The word you look for was dictatorship or tyranny. He's like, let's make him a monarch. Make him part of a royal family? (laughs) What are you talking about? nothing to do with it. These guys are going to put me in an early grave, man. They really are. And then he brings up, oh, you know, this is like trampling on the Constitution. Well, not necessarily. It depends on the, the context of the executive order. Yes, if it's something that involves the power of the purse that is not already allocated to executive agencies, then yes, you can't do it through executive order. True. Everybody knows that. Well, everybody who follows this stuff closely knows that. Um, but there are plenty of things that the president can do on their own. Through using their executive authority. I mean, for example, for everything when it comes to military, like if the president decides I want to end a war, he doesn't have to go through Congress. He can just end the war. He's the commander-in-chief. That's one thing. Um, things that don't involve the power of the purse or anything that involves the executive agencies that's already allocated to them and delegated to them with their power. So, for example, student loan debt. The it's something like 90 or 95% of the student loan debt is held by the federal government. So they already have the authority on that front, and the 1965 Higher Education Act already passed through Congress. It delegates to the education secretary and the president. If they want to eliminate student debt, they could do it literally right now. The experts who follow this stuff will tell you that. They already have the authority to do it. Now, I have no doubt that if Biden were to do that, these guys would scream, oh, my God, you're a tyrant. Well, actually, no, they'd say, you're a king. This is like a monarchy. What? (laughs) They would scream bloody murder, but they would be wrong. And, by the way, without a doubt, it would be upheld in court. If it were to be struck down in court, it would be total nonsense. It would be the most partisan hack decision you could ever imagine from the court. But they already have the authority under the 1965 Higher Education Act, signed by Lyndon B. Johnson, to do that. That's just one example. Legalizing marijuana. Okay, the president is the head of the executive branch. Uh, When it comes to, you know, the DEA is an executive branch, and you have the scheduling system. That's part of the executive branch. And so you have Schedule 1, 2, 3, 4. It goes down, right? The president could decide, I'm going to change, you know, marijuana from a Schedule 1, or I'll just take it off the list, or I'll change it from Schedule 1 to Schedule 3 or 4, whatever, and the president can do that. The head of the DEA can do that. That's not, that's an executive order. That's executive authority they have the ability to do. The president can expand health care to everybody during an emergency. That was a provision under Obamacare, which already passed Congress. So if something already passed Congress already, or if something is just part of the executive agencies, of course the president could just do it on, on his own. Of course. The president has more power than most people realize. Now, yes, if you have the wrong people with the reins on that, that's not good. Like, you don't want a psychopath. Like, you know, the Bush administration used their executive authority to do torture. Not good. So you want to make sure the power is in the right hands, but there are plenty of things that the 
the executive branch can do on their own. Now, there are things that they can't do, but AOC is not calling for Biden to do anything that's not already in his delegated power. So it's just like they just have such shitty arguments against the left when the left calls for very basic things. And by the way, you could make an argument even if Biden were to do something with his executive power that he doesn't have the authority to do, you still could make an argument that that's more democratic than the opposite. Why? Because let's say if Biden decides, I want to do, I'm just going to make up an example here. I'm going to cut more $2,000 checks to people. By the way, Trump did try to have the executive authority, but I digress. If he decided to do that, that, that polls at like whatever, 60 or 70%. If Congress doesn't want to go along with him, who's really acting more democratic? Well, if Biden's trying to, to uphold the will of the American people, you could argue that's more democratic than the primitive, archaic process that you have to go through in order to get to that point. So even in areas where he doesn't even have the power, there is a philosophical argument. He's actually being more democratic because he's representing the democratic will of the people, even though technically the process is incorrect. But this, of course, is way above numbnut's head because he's one of the dumbest people on TV. So anyway, there you have it. I got plenty of criticisms of AOC. This is not one of them. She's 100% right. If anything, her fault in this whole conversation is that even though she's tweeting that this is what Biden should do, are you, are you ready to force him to do it? Are you ready to use your own action to make him do it? How would you do that? Get a group of 14 House progressives, swear to each other that you're going to vote as a block no matter what, and then you meet with Biden and say, we're going to block everything unless you start doing executive orders. That's how she would really be doing the right thing. Now she's just tweeting, which she's expressing the right sentiment, but is she actually going to carry it out? Well, that's a separate question. Okay. So Slavoj Žižek was on um, Brianna Joy Gray's podcast, Bad Faith. They had a great conversation. I suggest everybody go check it out. Um, I'm going to show you her little teaser clip here. Um, and he's going to make an argument for basically accelerationism. Now, if you don't know what that is, I'll explain it when we get back, and then I'll explain why it's not a good idea. I don't know what percentage on 
the hard left are actually accelerationists, but it is an idea that some people believe in and some people flirt with or semi-believe in. The idea of accelerationism is things need to get so catastrophically bad before they get better. It's, it's akin to the idea of like an addict needs to hit rock bottom before the addict can actually get off the sauce. That's the idea. Um, now, in a political context, I think this really doesn't make sense. And here's why. When you look at recent American history, there's actually a direct rebuttal of that notion right in front of our faces. So namely, when things get really bad, they don't then bounce back and get better. When things get really bad, they tend to get worse. So in other words, take George W. Bush. You know, the, this is the administration that when I was having my political awakening, I was following everything that was going on with it. And everything was very clear. So the Bush administration went hard right on so many fronts. I mean, Bill Clinton started the deregulation. George W. Bush continued it and put it into overdrive. You have the illegal and uh, unconstitutional wars that the, Bush, that the Bush administration did. You have torture. You have tax cuts for the rich. So Republicans went hard right. Now, under this theory, well, that would lead to ushering in a new era of more left utopian ideal, a Democratic Party that actually stands for um, the working class. But what happened was the opposite. What happened was Bush went hard right, and then the Democrats met him halfway. The Democrats, most of them, voted for the Iraq war. You know, the Democrats turned a blind eye to the torture. Bush came, or excuse me, Obama came in and made 90% of the Bush tax cuts permanent. Now, granted, the ones Obama made permanent were more for people at the lower end of the economic ladder. But what you see here is the further right the Republicans go, the more the Democrats move right to meet them halfway. So in a sense, that's the polar opposite of the idea of accelerationism, that, oh, when things get bad, you have to bottom out and then it'll get better. Well, I'll argue we bottomed out under Bush. And everything since then has been just a... Uh, a repeat of that status quo. It, it's like the movie Groundhog Day, but for the status quo every single day. So Bush was terrible, then Obama was terrible, then Trump was terrible, and now Biden is terrible. And that's not to say there's no differences between them. I do think that if you go with a fine-tooth comb through all of their policies, you will find many more better things done by Obama and Biden than by Bush and Trump. But like I said, to further prove the point, it's just little things that the Democrats do better. Largely, they keep moving further right to accommodate the right. So that is a direct rebuttal to this notion. It refutes it completely, this idea that if it gets really bad, then it'll get better. Well, it already got really bad, and it didn't get better. It's getting worse. And even this idea, so like the acceleration has had this argument of like, well, Trump will be so bad that he'll reinvigorate the left, and then the left can win in sweeping victories. What happened was the opposite. Trump was so bad that Democratic voters got scared into believing anybody but Trump will do. And so we got Biden, a half-dead zombie who his biggest legislative accomplishments were Republican ideas like the crime bill and voting for the Iraq war and voting for the Patriot Act. Like, the exact opposite happened than the claim the accelerationists make. So we got Trump. And then instead of Democratic voters going, well, we totally need the opposite of this. We really hit rock bottom. Let's go hard left now and usher in a new FDR and a new New Deal era. Instead of that happening, 
Democratic voters went, Trump is so bad, I will take literally anybody but Trump. And so that's what we got, anybody but Trump. We got Biden. And the idea that Trump would make the left get their act together, no, Trump made certainly the Democratic Party go full Russiagate conspiracy theorist stupid. They went full, MSNBC went full, will be the left-wing version of Fox News. So it's just, it's not true. I know it's not sexy. I know it's not an appealing argument online. But the fact of the matter is, the thing that everybody should have in their mind is Rome wasn't built in a day. You build Rome brick by brick. So any little tiny push in the right direction, even if you move a millimeter in the right direction, is a movement in the right direction, and you build on the momentum that you have. So the wins that we're seeing now are what? The wins we're seeing now are all grassroots focused. It's unions. Kellogg's workers winning in their strike. John Deere workers winning in their strike. The other thing is the grassroots pressure. Biden felt grassroots pressure on free at-home COVID tests. Then they were like, okay, we're going to do free at-home COVID tests. So in other words, it's always the hard work from the bottom up that yields the results. And you push no matter what the situation is. So if you have a, a hostile administration to you, you push them. If you have a friendly administration to you, you push them. If you have a semi-hostile, semi-friendly administration, you push them. Either way, you wake up and do the same thing. You put the work in no matter what the situation is. But this notion that you let it get as bad as possible before you fight back is absurd. It's like saying, I broke my right leg and I'm going to try to heal it. It's like if somebody said, I know I broke my right leg. What if I broke my left one as well and then waited for both of them to heal? Well, why would you do that? If your right leg is broken, start healing that immediately. Don't also break your other leg and then wait for both of them to heal. But hey, I can really have a fresh start with my legs if I break both of them and then try to heal both of them at the same time. It's better to only have one broken leg than two. Duh. So in some respects, look, um, I didn't vote for Joe Biden because I live in a safe state, and it doesn't really matter what I do in New York. But the fact of the matter is he is easier to push than Donald Trump was. And Obama was easier to push than than, um, Bush was. But that doesn't mean that they're good. That doesn't mean that they, you know, they're, they're a positive force or that they deserve more credit than they actually do. But that is a fact. And so the idea of the accelerationist, I think, is just refuted by recent history. And anybody who actually is an accelerationist, what you'll find is they contradict themselves in a number of different ways. So like a lot of the people who were accelerationists who thought, well, Trump will usher in a more organized left, well, they then, they then realized that under, um, under Trump, you had a more disorganized left, and you had Russiagate became the mind virus on, on the Democratic side, and there was no real organizing catalyst on the left to really um, get their act together and lead on the messaging front. And so you can't admit that that's the case, but then also say, no, it would have been good if we had a worse president and we bottomed out even more. You don't make things better by making them worse. You make things better by making them better. So in some ways, this accelerationist idea fails because it, it's tautologically incorrect. Don't fall for it. And there are some people who would argue, well, look, the argument for accelerationism is that when it gets so bad, then you have a revolution, to which I say, LOL, because the government it has so much power and so many weapons, and they have a monopoly on violence, So you're never going to win an actual revolution. That's obvious. I mean, they have fucking nuclear weapons. So I do think that that's more like a childish notion that barely even deserves comment. Um, The way you win is the way that the left has won historically 
period, which is look at what happened in South Africa. Look at what happened with the civil rights movement in the U.S. Look at what happened with women's suffrage. You know, you push and you push and you push and you do it as nonviolently as humanly possible, but you don't take no for an answer. And you make things better by making them better. They don't get better by getting worse. So that's my little breakdown on that. Now, I think if Zizek heard me say all this stuff to his face, he'd agree with all of it, which is why I would also say, well, then stop even flirting with the idea of accelerationism. It's not good. It's not true. Okay. Final story of the day. So this is um, a really terrifying and sad video. It's a graphic video, so I'm giving you a warning beforehand. Uh, Afghans are starving due to U.S. sanctions. CNN, to their credit, actually did a really good report on it. Take a look. The United Nations says that Afghanistan is now on the brink of, quote, a humanitarian catastrophe, and one million Afghan children are at risk of dying from hunger while the country grapples with the aftermath of the chaotic U.S. exit, an historic drought, and economic collapse. As CNN's Anna Corrin reports, Afghanistan is also bracing for a brutal winter ahead. We do want to warn viewers, some of the images in this story may be difficult to watch. A little girl sobs, gently rubbing her ears. In a feeble attempt to ease the pain tormenting her body. She doesn't have the energy to cry the way other sick children do. Camilla is exhausted as she lies in a hospital bed in Kandahar, southern Afghanistan, slowly starving to death. The two-and-a-half-year-old weighs just over five kilograms, 11 pounds, about a third of what a normal toddler her age should. Her mother is sick and we are poor people, explains Camilla's grandmother. She tried to breastfeed but had no milk to give. Camilla, now one of at least a million Afghan children under the age of five, at risk of dying from starvation. For months, the UN has been sounding the alarm, warning that Afghanistan was on the brink of a humanitarian catastrophe. The Taliban takeover on the 15th of August saw international funds immediately dry up, triggering an economic collapse in an already impoverished country, where foreign aid represented 43% of the country's GDP and 75% of government spending, according to the World Bank. But as the U.S. withholds billions of dollars in Afghan reserves and sanctions are imposed on the Taliban government, the West's attempts to force fundamental change within the group are hurting the Afghan people. And with the country and the groups of winter facing one of the worst droughts in decades, the most vulnerable are paying the price. In this hospital in Gore province in northwestern Afghanistan, up to 100 mothers and children turn up each day with varying cases of malnutrition. <laughs> Dr. Fazila Hotsfajad has been working here for the past six years and has never seen this level of desperation. Almost 70% of the cases are severe, and this is in the city. Imagine how bad the districts are. 
If nobody pays attention, it's going to get much worse. We are in a disaster. One of his patients receiving treatment is Ravi. <laughs> this is her third visit to hospital in eight months. Her skeletal frame, a clear sign this child, who's just a few months away from turning three, is not getting better. So this is because of U.S. sanctions. After the Taliban took over, they froze Afghanistan's assets. Now, why wouldn't the U.S. lift the sanctions and allow this crisis to be uh, abated? The answer is very simple. Joe Biden does not want to give the Republicans an optics victory, where they turn around and say, Joe Biden gave the Taliban billions of dollars, because that's exactly how Republicans would frame it. They would say, Joe Biden gives the Taliban billions of dollars. Joe Biden knows that. He doesn't want to give them that optics victory. So he would rather starve the civilians of Afghanistan. Financial Times has a piece out today. Dire projections show Afghanistan faces highest ever recorded hunger crisis. Highest ever recorded. 98% of Afghans already don't have enough food. Banking, health, education, water systems, collapsing. You ready for this next one? I hope you're sitting down for this one. One million children are at risk of dying from hunger. One million dying from hunger. This is a war crime. Look, you got to keep it real. This is actually even worse than the war. The civilian death toll can be way, way worse than the war itself. So he pulled out. I gave him credit when he pulled out of Afghanistan militarily. But now the dynamic has shifted. He's absolutely starving the civilians in Afghanistan to avoid giving the Republicans an optics victory. And it is completely and utterly unacceptable and illegal. And it's a war crime. And he should be brought up in charges at the Hague. He should immediately lift these sanctions. Immediately. The war's over. The Taliban won. They're not going to attack the U.S. They never attacked the U.S. to begin with. It was Al-Qaeda who did it. You've got to allow them to access their assets. You've got to uh, lift the sanctions. There's no way around it, man. There's no way out of it. And by the way, to the media, so CNN gets credit for doing this segment. There were a number of hosts, on, other hosts on CNN like Jake Tapper. And there were MSNBC hosts, Fox News hosts. They were melting down over by, oh, my God, pulling out of Afghanistan. What about the civilians? What about the people? They're going to be under repressive Taliban rule. We care so much. We have bleeding hearts for the innocents in Afghanistan. Where are you now? There was sustained outrage coverage for, what, two weeks straight on Afghanistan? Where are you now when the crisis is way worse? It's way worse than it was before. It's way worse than even the war that happened whether it's the war or the Taliban takeover or whatever, it's nothing in comparison to what's happening right this second with babies starving and you have nothing to say about it because you don't actually care about the people of Afghanistan at all. You were doing the bidding of the military industrial complex and the Pentagon and your sources and you're a stenographer to the Pentagon, the military industrial complex, the CIA. When they told you jump, you said how high. When they said be outraged, you said yes, sir. 
And so they acted like pulling out of Afghanistan, oh, my God, this is the biggest crime in history. The war itself wasn't a huge crime. The war itself was maybe a mistake. But this is pulling out is the biggest crime in history. That's the problem. Let's melt down and pretend like we care about civilians. Well, now there's a test of your character and your honesty. Because what's happening right now is way worse. And none of you are saying anything which shows you how biased and disgusting U.S. media is and corporate media is. They are miserable failures. They're not actually looking at evidence and saying, where is there a real crisis around the world? Let's talk about that and put, make that scandalous. No, that's not how they make their decisions. It's not based on what is objectively the correct thing to cover and what is objectively correct to have moral and ethical outrage over. They don't do that. If that was the case, they would still be screaming about how we're arming Saudi Arabia as they committed genocide in Yemen. These outlets have little to nothing to say about Yemen and Afghanistan when this is, these are the worst crises in the world right now. But we are actively facilitating it so they don't cover it, which means they are state propagandists. Corporate media functions as beholden to the powerful in the U.S., and it's very clear. They'll bitch and whine and moan and talk about state media in regards to Iran or the official baddie countries. What they don't tell you is they're just as bad, if not worse. Look at what they're doing here. Nothing to say about 98% starving in Afghanistan because of our sanctions. Nothing to say about it. Well, you guys know where to come. Where I'll try to be honest and tell you the truth and, and cover the things that are important. You come here for that. And it's a goddamn shame. I would much rather have corporate media do their job right than be a, a new media outlet where we're one of the few even talking about this. It's a crime that you have to come to a, a random, loudmouth YouTuber like myself to get real news. But that's the reality. This is even worse than the war itself. And the number of deaths could far surpass the war itself. And it's not even being mentioned by any of the people who feigned their outrage like Jake Tapper. Absolutely pathetic. Biden, lift those sanctions right this second. You already have blood on your hands, but there's going to be a fucking swimming pool of blood that you're diving head first into unless you do the right thing. All right, guys, we're done. Love y'all. Uh, there is no show on Monday, but there is a show on Wednesday. So no show on Monday the 27th, but there is a show on Wednesday the 29th. I love you guys. I'll talk to you soon. Peace.